Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we speak with John Farnsworth, author of the new book, Nature Beyond Solitude, Notes from the Field. A lifelong student of literary natural history, John taught environmental writing and literature at Santa Clara University. He is author of Coves of Departure, also from Cornell. We spoke to John about his positive experiences at six different field stations along the West Coast, why in nature it's hard to see what you are not seeing, and why he believes we are now entering a golden age of natural history. Hello, John. Welcome to the podcast. It's good to meet you, Jonathan, finally. Nice to meet you as well. Congratulations on your new book, Nature Beyond Solitude, Notes from the Field. Beautiful, beautiful cover. We're getting a lot of uh, great comments online about the cover. People are loving the cover and they're also loving what's inside. We're getting some good reviews okay. right from that. Um, so tell us, what inspired you to write the book? The inspiration for this book came in a few ways. There wasn't a, a, a lightning bolt moment. Uh, my previous book, which was with Cornell as well, um, Coves of Departure, there's the main narrative about uh, kayak expeditions I took with my students, but I interrupt that with two uh, interludes, I call them, where I included basically my field notes from two visions to two visits to field stations down in Baja. Uh, and as I was getting feedback from other writers, they were telling me that that was their favorite part of the book, mm. you know, these interludes. And I thought, I wonder if I could do a book just of field notes, just of, of visits to field stations, kind of in a dreamy way. And then I was at a seminar with uh, Dr. Peter Kariva, who at the time was the chief scientist um, for the Nature Conservancy, a friend of mine. And he had been, he's a fellow with the National Academy of Sciences and had been on a committee that was looking at better ways to preserve and make more sustainable biological field stations. So the seminar was about that. And he was talking about trying to find new matrices to show the worth of these stations. And of course he's speaking as a scientist and as a scholar from the humanities, the environmental humanities, I'm thinking, no, what you really need to do is just tell the story of these stations. Yeah. So that was kind of the second layer of maybe I could do this field notes thing and, and uh, tell that story. And I decided just to try experimentally. I, I started researching and I was seeing a lot of the most interesting stations to connect with were doing long-term studies, like 45-year studies, 30-year studies, and so on, which all the studies in this book are, you know, one of them is a 200-year proposed study. So I thought, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna just going to reach out to one of these. And it was a, a professor uh, uh, from Cornell, Walter Koenig, who is involved in a 45-year-long study of acorn woodpeckers and their cooperative breeding. And I wrote to him and I said, I'm thinking about this book, and I'd love to join you for two weeks to a month and just be an unpaid research assistant and, and write about it. Within 30 minutes, he wrote me back, welcomed me to the team, started setting things up. And I think that was the greatest inspiration was just that people there in the field were saying, yeah, come do this, be part of us. I wrote to six field stations and within a month, five had me on board. Two set me up with residencies. 
I was getting honorariums. Wow. I was getting grant money. So there was enthusiasm on the other side. That's great. And, and I had expected to have to jump through a lot of hoops and run into brick walls and all that. And there's a little bit of that, you know, I, I was in the field for six months, but uh, certainly the inspiration I got from the principal, principal investigators I was working with initially told me this is the right, this is the book to write right now. Excellent, excellent. So you're getting a lot of positive feedback right off the bat from people in the field. Yeah, a, a real sense of welcome. Mm -hmm. uh, usually within an hour or two of when I showed up at a field station, I'd be teaming up with someone going out in the field and actually doing work. Okay. So there was, there was not ever a time where I felt like a stranger at these stations. Um, and that, that was no matter where I went, uh, we, were, we were involved right away in their projects. Excellent, excellent. So reading, um, reading your book, I see that there's, as you mentioned, six stations. There's the Hastings Natural History Reservation, the Santa Cruz Island Reserve, Golden Gate Raptor Observatory, H.J. Andrews Experimental Forest, and the North Cascades Environmental Learning Center. Uh, it's difficult to choose amongst all of these places, but do you have a, a favorite memory from uh, one of the, the uh, sections in the book from your notes? Hmm. <laughs> uh, I, I think the, the cool thing about it was I was working basically south to north. And so I was, the, the seasons, I was almost working backwards, but I, I was trying to start at working, when I was working at Hastings and then the Santa Cruz Island Reserve, um, I, was, I wanted to be there during nesting season and during, during times where they were doing specific surveys or whatever. I think the Santa Cruz Island Reserve was the coolest place to be only because um, I was in a part of the island, about two thirds of that island is controlled by the Nature Conservancy and then the reserve itself, which is part of the University of California system. And nobody can get back in there. Uh, unless you have a research permit or you're there with a class. So I had, I had kind of this island to myself a lot of the time, unless the, uh, I was working with other researchers. Um, and that was just cool. That was, it was neat to be at a place where I had uh, a very unique access while they were doing restoration ecology. Yeah, that sounds amazing to, to have this sense of being in this isolated area that you, you know where people are, but you also know that you're one of the few on this island. Right, and the, we were working there with island foxes, which is like a gray fox, only smaller. It's like a, a, a miniature version. There's a, a thing called island dwarfism, where a species will kind of, they even have one less vertebrae in their tail. Uh, and they're, they're maybe three pounds. They're, they're no larger than a cat. They can climb trees, but they're, they're kind of tame. They'll come right up to you. Uh, especially if you're cooking chicken outside or something like that. You know, they, um, and to have that kind of access with a species that was hugely endangered five years ago and just now got taken off the endangered species list, it was neat to do that kind of research and to be in an area where uh, the, the normal public doesn't get to do that. Wow, that's such an amazing experience. Uh, 
you start off your book uh, with a quote from Henry David Thoreau. The question is not what you look at, but what you see. Tell us a little bit more about how this quote from Thoreau informs your writing, informs your experience and your philosophy of life. I had a transformative experience decades ago. I went to a writing conference called Art of the Wild. The conference hasn't existed for 20 or 30 years now. But uh, one afternoon we were having activities and one of the possibilities was going on a, a butterfly hike with Robert Michael Powell, one of the great lepidopterists in the country and a, a fabulous writer. And there were also wildflower bird hikes, but I knew the wildflowers, I knew the birds, butterflies I didn't really know much about at all. So I thought I'm gonna go out with, with this, this uh, famous naturalist and, and learn butterflies. And we started up a trail that I had hiked the day before and I had not seen any butterflies. And I almost said, hey Bob, maybe, maybe you wanna pick a different trail. But I, I, I was smart enough to keep my thoughts to myself. And as we went up, there were butterflies everywhere and more species than I even knew existed. And you know, he was capturing them in his butterfly net and we were getting a close up look at him and all. And, and I had hiked that same bit trail the day before and hadn't seen a single butterfly. And that taught me something really important about observation. You know, we saw the butterflies because we were looking for the butterflies. And that transformed how I approached nature. Um, sometimes it's just hard to, to see what you're not seeing. Yeah. And that's something I work on with students. One of the first uh, writing exercises we'll have in class is, what did you fail to notice when you came to class tonight? I like that. I like that. And so when you're out in the wild, when you're out in nature, what type of or what frame of mind do you have? Are you just open to any possibility? So your so your eyes are as wide open as possible. How, how do you how do you experience? Well, I, one of the things I learned from my PhD supervisor, the great Scottish nature writer Kathleen Jamie, is you really look at the common, so that when you see something that isn't common, then you know. But to 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 not just always look for the exotic, but to to really get to know the landscape. Uh, as a, a, an important first step. In this book, I was trying to um, not only write about nature, but to write from nature. And so I made a commitment to the reader that everything would be written in situ, um, not only from the location, but from the moment. So I would maybe do four hours of field work every day and then spend four or five hours writing that up. Uh, of course, taking notes during the field work uh, and, and then um, transponding them when I got back to my, my cabin or whatever. Um, so there was a very immediate experience of, of writing that way. I don't know that I'll do it again because it was, it was pretty intense. Aldo Leopold said in his uh, uh, Sand County Almanac, he said, uh, books about nature rarely mention the wind because they're being written from behind stoves. And I wanted to do, just for my own self, a, a different way of, of writing from nature so that the reader, hopefully, as I'm doing this work in these field stations, is kind of peering over my shoulder. That's great, that's great. How do you, how do you feel your book will impact readers as they're reading it? 
I don't know. And Jonathan, part of that is because I don't really write to impact anyone other than myself. Mm -hmm. uh, I can tell you how it impacted me, that, that process. Um, but I'm not trying to change anybody's mind or make them feel the same way as I did. But certainly two major lessons for me as I spent six months in these field stations. Um, the first is that I was just impressed about the, the, uh, the quality of the natural history going on, the, the, the depth of the research. There's so many new tools they have that didn't even exist when I was an undergraduate. Um, and I make the case that I really think that we're entering into the golden age of natural history. And I think, I think that's gonna be controversial because so many people are thinking that we're, we're seeing natural history on the decline. Uh, there are certainly fewer and fewer people specializing in it at the university level and so on. But I came away from that experience really not only energized, but hopeful about, about what I was seeing. The people I was working with in the field were just wonderful. The other thing, and I really hadn't expected this, but you know, most of the principal investigators I was working with were, you know, old white guys my age, facial hair, uh, kind of what you'd expect. But the young people were overwhelmingly female. And that certainly changed the nature of community in these stations. And I think as these people progress from being interns and research assistants to grad students, and then finally, you know, start their own labs and stuff. I think that's going to change the very nature of the science. And I think that's going to be very good. So I came away encouraged about the future of, of these kinds of projects. I certainly hope that by telling the story of these field stations, I can be part of promoting their preservation because it's expensive for a, a university or a, a conservancy, a, a bird observatory to keep these things going. But um, when you look at these long-term ecological studies, we're learning stuff that we're just not gonna learn from people doing PhD dissertations that take three years. Yeah, yeah. You, you mentioned the future and the future of natural history writing and the, the books that you've published with us, Coves of Departure and Nature, Beyond Solitude are part of this, you passing on the torch, you passing on your wisdom. And in, and in correspondence, you've uh, let me know that you're actually teaching workshops on how to uh, write about nature uh, at, the U at Hugo House in Seattle. What's mm -hmm. it like to teach nature writing in a major city, downtown Seattle? What's that like? Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I have to say, I, I've been here less than two years, so I'm still a stranger in a strange place. Um, Seattle's got the most marvelous topography sounding, surrounding it. You know, you've got Mount Rainier to the south, Puget Sound to the west, and then beyond the sound, on the other side of the sound, you've got the uh, Olympic Peninsula. We, from the Seattle shore, you can see the Olympic Mountains. To, to the north, you've got the San Juan Islands. And to the uh, east, you've got the North Cascade Mountains, where I spent a month in the fifth chapter of, of the new book. Uh, written there, just absolutely spectacular. I love the Cascades. Now is, is very urban and has very urban problems. Uh, two days ago in the Seattle Times, there was an article about the county 
is now seeking a permit to harass bald eagles because there are more than 200 bald eagles feeding in the county dump. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, how many, how many cities have that kind of problem? Um, High quality but, problem. Yeah, it is a problem because they would prefer, eagles are uh, opportunistic feeders and they'll do whatever they need to get protein, including scavenge but they would prefer to be eating fish. And right now there's not enough salmon in the rivers to take care of their population. So they're doing whatever they have to do. So there are conservation issues there. I'm a conservation chair right now for Seattle Audubon Society. And we had a meeting last night, a regular scheduled meeting where this eagle question came up and you know, we're really scratching our heads. What do you do about 200 bald eagles in the dump? Um, other than, of course, help try to restore the salmon population, which is desperately needed up, up here in the Pacific Northwest. So, you know, you've got this great nature. I've got these students who are, are wonderful naturalists, really outdoors people. Um, one of the sweetest classes I've ever taught. A couple weeks ago, we had a gang shooting right before class that was eight blocks away. And, uh, I was started getting text messages from students. Oh, I've tried to leave my building, but the police are making us shelter in place. I can't get downtown because the buses have all been suspended and, and so on. So I started with the class of 14. I started with five people. And then another person came in a half hour late and said, I had to walk. I couldn't get a cab. I couldn't get a bus. You know, Uber wasn't running. So, you know, it, it, we were a little distracted from nature in that particular session, but it's uh, Seattle's something. It really is. We've 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 got a grounding here, and yet the growth with all these corporations—you know, Amazon, Microsoft, Boeing—the um, growth is so severe that it, we're really fighting to keep some sense of an urban canopy. Seattle wants to keep thirty percent of its tree cover within 20 years and and that's so hard to do when you've got all this development going on and so on so it's exciting because it's in a place where you know i get to spend the next couple of weeks researching bald eagles and dumps <laughs> uh, well, you're, you're very lucky i mean seattle or uh, portland vancouver that whole northwest corridor those, those cities have a very strong level of uh, environmental consciousness, environmental pride. So you have a, a, a ready population for your, your teaching, for your class. Uh, so yeah, the class called Writing Nature, it's gonna fill up, you know, okay. that's, that's for sure in this area. Um, that's great, that's great. Well, I wish you the best of luck with uh, this 10 week workshop that you're doing at the Hugo House. And I want to congratulate you again for your new book, Nature Beyond Solitude, Notes from the Field. Thank you. And thank you, Jonathan, for all you've done to help bring that to its readers. Oh, our pleasure. And it was a pleasure talking with you. Okay. All right. You take care. Thanks, Jonathan. All right. Thanks, John. That was John Farnsworth author of the new book, Nature Beyond Solitude, Notes from the Field. As a loyal listener to the podcast, we'd like to offer you a special 30% discount on his new book. To receive your discount, please go to cornellpress.cornell.edu 
and use the promo code 09POD. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSAnnounce and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.